Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Most of us learned in school that the United States took its first definitive form in 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was drafted and signed. But last year, the New York Times developed something called the 1619 Project, an interactive collection of articles, poems, stories, and photos that traces the real beginning of the United States to the year 1619, when the first black slaves arrived in what is now mainland North America. The creator of the project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has promoted an ambitious and controversial historical theory, namely that the protection of slavery was one of the main factors motivating the American revolutionary movement, and a number of respected historians have criticized its content. To discuss the 1619 project, I spoke this week to Quillette contributor Coleman Hughes, who, together with other well-known black writers and scholars, has created a counterpoint to the 1619 Project known as the 1776 Project. We discussed American history, Black Lives Matter, and Hughes' own frustrations with the modern obsession with racial identity. Here are excerpts from our conversation. The 1619 Project, can you tell me what its goal was? The goal of the 1619 Project was to reframe American history to place slavery and white supremacy at the center of the story that we tell ourselves about who we are. The tactic that was chosen to do this was to say that, metaphorically, the beginning of the country was not 1776, the Declaration of Independence. Rather, it was 1619 when the first Africans were brought to colonial Virginia. And the goal was to produce not just journalism, but as I understand it, it's going to be encoded in some kind of curriculum materials for students? I don't know what the original goal was. The project's creator was Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a journalist with New York Times Magazine and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. It has now been adopted as textbook material for every high school in the Chicago school system, as well as the Buffalo, New York school system. It's obviously true that the issue of white racial supremacy was embedded in the American project in its constitutional scheme. Famously, uh, the founding fathers were arguing whether blacks were half or three-fifths of, of, of a white person for constitutional purposes. Surely it's, it's uncontroversial that some element of racial supremacy was embedded in the founding of the United States. So the Constitution... It's an unusual document because it was a compromise document. What had to happen was that people that were very pro-slavery, wanted slavery to exist forever and always, had to sign the same document as people who were anti-slavery. They had to agree on language in order to make a country. And so what the result was, was a document that did not mention the word slave even once, that didn't abolish slavery, but planted the seeds for its abolition. And so later, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, would refer back to the Declaration and the Constitution as anti-slavery documents. 
as as for the three fifths compromise, that I think has been widely misunderstood as a statement about how much of a human being black people were. What it was was simply a negotiation about how much political power the South would have. The South would have wanted slaves to have been counted as a full person because that would have given them more representation in Congress. The North wanted slaves to be counted as zero people. Therefore, the South would have had less political power and the abolitionist forces in the North would have had more power. But broadly speaking, when this country was founded, slavery was a significant part of the economy and it became an even bigger part of the economy with the cotton boom. That coexisted alongside a rhetoric of freedom, a doctrine of natural rights which said that the nation does not give you your rights. You already have rights just by virtue of being a person and the government is simply intended to secure them. That was a novel idea historically, indeed a brand new idea to found a nation on. Yet it existed alongside a system of forced labor that directly contradicted it. And the contradiction was apparent, and it eventually required reconciliation in bloodshed in the Civil War. I think we should be careful not to reduce it to either side of the contradiction. Washington and Jefferson were slave owners. How did Lincoln himself reconcile that fact with his claim that embedded within the founding American documents, there were the seeds of abolishing slavery. The founders in Jefferson, like us today, can practice one thing and preach another. And this may seem a trivializing example, but I am very opposed to factory farming. I think it's immoral. I also eat meat that's factory farmed. So Jefferson tried to ban slavery in the westward expansion. He was thwarted in some of those efforts. There was a necessity of compromise between two fundamentally different visions for what America was going to be, a slave society forever or a free society for all men at the time. But when you look back and you read, all men are created equal, that is a very totalizing statement. It's really only open to one plausible interpretation. There were some people who, yes, viewed the founding documents as pro-slavery texts, but the most influential and the majority, I think, of abolitionists, Frederick Douglass, etc., believed the founding documents were clearly anti-slavery texts. And when the South seceded, or attempted to secede, it created its own founding documents for the Confederacy. And it had to. If the founding documents of the U.S. were clearly pro-slavery, they could have just copy-pasted for the Confederate founding documents. They couldn't do that. They had to create something anew that explicitly says slavery is legal, rather, and always will be. So I think it was very plausible to read the founding documents as anti-slavery. Was there anything about the 1619 Project materials that you did like, or that you did learn from, or that you did think would make a good basis for education? In general, I'm not sure there's anything that I learned there that I couldn't have learned much better and more fully from a historian or a history text or a history class, or a documentary. In other words, there was no new archive that was discovered that unearthed some interesting material. The 1776 project, with which you're involved, it was conceived in response to the 1619 project. Some of the people who are participating, you, Wilfred Riley, who wrote a piece for Quillette, Bob Woodson, 
Jason Hill, Carol Swain. What's the common thread linking those writers and scholars? I think the common thread linking us, we are dismayed at the very muscular attempt, especially in the school systems, to teach that America is fundamentally racist, that quote-unquote white supremacy is in our DNA. That's a very important analogy, and it's chosen specifically for a reason. It's said in, in the 1619 Project. We challenge that false narrative that says systemic racism is a defining feature of America. Actually, I looked at some of the 1619 Project materials. I don't have your expertise in some of the subjects we're discussing, but one thing that struck me is there is this fatalistic tone, this idea that America is a fallen country full of fallen people, and almost as if it's programmed for racism, which is depressing, and it also kind of seems to discourage action to the extent that action can be taken. Yes and no. I think you're right that it's fatalistic in its tone. I think that fatalism is a pose that is, in a weird way, meant to spur action. So in in another context, a great article, I forget the journalist's name, explicitly saying that the 1619 Project is an argument for reparations, which I think is very interesting and telling. It's not actually a neutral attempt to educate Americans about history. For listeners who aren't in North America, by reparations, you mean government reparations for the descendants? Of slaves. Yes, that's right. So I do think that despite the fatalistic tone, there is a political project here. And also, just by way of background, of course, you have in the past been a critic of the reparations movement. We spoke about this, I think, last year on the Quillette podcast, specifically as it was articulated by Tanahesi Coates, who I think he's probably the most high-profile advocate of reparations. Was your linking up with some of these scholars I mentioned, uh, Riley, Woodson, was that, did that come out of the reparations controversy? Not that I'm aware of. I got in touch with Bob Woodson, who is the creator of the 1776 Project, through Glenn Lowry, the economist and professor at Brown University, whose podcast I've been on a few times. I want to step back and ask a larger question about Black political activism. My background is in the Jewish community, and I know that some years ago, a group called J Street was created. I think it was created in 2007. J Street was seen as a kind of opposition party within Jewish activism in Washington. It was to the left of established Zionist groups. And to this day, there's two camps. Is there an analogous structure that exists within Black intellectual and activist circles? Looking at the hostility between J Street and its alternatives, in that narrow respect, it seems like there's a similar level of hostility between, you know, black people who f- would favor the 1776 and, and the 1619 project. These discussions can get quite intense. Have you have you received pushback in regard to the 1776 project that was on the same level that you got when you, I think you appeared before a congressional committee, if I remember, to critique the reparations movement? Yeah, it's been much less with the 1776 project because it's a much lower profile undertaking than testifying before Congress. But the style of the pushback has been the same. I've seen the same thing within the Jewish community. You know, someone like Peter Beinart, who has arguments to the effect that 
you know, Jews really should be thinking much more deeply about the grievances Palestinians bring up. And, you know, he argued with Alan Dershowitz, I think twice publicly about this and is seen as a traitor by some Jews. So I think the analogy you bring up is right in the sense that there's this, there's this traitor meme. Sometimes with, with Jews, the, the term I've seen is like a useful, useful Jew. idiot. A useful idiot, right? A useful idiot. Usually with, with black people, it's more like an Uncle Tom or sellout or something like that. So yeah, I've gotten that. It's interesting that Nicole Hannah-Jones's reaction to the 1776 project was to post a picture of herself, just a picture, like wearing grills in her teeth. And she said, quote, this is like, this is my reaction to the 1776 project. Just a picture of her like exasperated face, essentially an eye roll. Sort of like the Twitter meme of I can't even. Yeah, yeah. And then later in a different tweet, she said, of my essay, I haven't read it and don't plan to. Okay, not a fan. I don't know what one can do with that. Well, she already has her MacArthur grant, so... For the record, though, Bob Woodson also has a MacArthur okay, grant. Okay, so it's <laughs> MacArthur versus MacArthur. There's one on each side. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can't get into all of the claims contained in the 1619 Project, but there's one that stands out, and I want to make sure that I'm being fair to it. Is it accurate to say that the 1619 Project materials claim that the USA seceded from Britain primarily to protect slavery? Is that a claim made in the 1619 Project? The claim made, and I think uh, I want to be fair to it, I think it says one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons that the, the U.S. revolted against Britain was to preserve slavery. That's right. From what I understand, one of the main critics of this was a historian, I think Gordon Wood, who is primarily identified as, well, I guess some conservatives would call him a radical leftist. Yes. But he was, he was rather scathing regarding some of the history contained in 1619, yes? Yes, he was scathing, as was James Oakes, as were a few other quite prominent historians that were by no means on the right. In fact, there was just a series of interviews on this Marxist website, Worldwide Socialist Web, of historians, some of whom have been beloved on the left and in general for quite some time really debunking some of these claims. I'm not a historian. I don't know enough about the American Revolution to parse the truth of that claim. But what, from what I can tell, the majority of, of, of experts in that era would not sign on to that, to that statement. One of the interesting parts about the American Revolution is it is such a deeply documented historical event. Mm -hmm. You had the Federalist Papers, you had Common Sense, you had a hundred different newspapers, most of them rapidly partisan, mm -hmm. churning out daily or weekly propaganda. Mm -hmm. I went to law school, we spent a lot of time on that period in constitutional development. You know, this was a very left wing environment that I went to law school in, no one ever mentioned any of this. Had this been like a percolating opinion or view in recent years, and it was just ready to burst out reinventing the American Revolution as a kind of proto-Civil War. <laughs> Had you heard about this before? Uh, no, I hadn't heard about it before. Uh, I think what probably what happened is there's one book by a historian, I think, dedicated to making this case. And I haven't read the book, but probably Nicole Hannah-Jones and you know folks in that crowd have read this one book. Perhaps there are some other books, but this is the one that I, that I know of. The, the way historical scholarship proceeds is, you know, people advance arguments that are controversial and they either become accepted by the mainstream 
or they get refuted. And at, at a certain point, you have to rely on the consensus of the field if you're an outsider to it, or you just have to dedicate enormous amounts of time to pouring through research on, on both sides of an issue. However, you can have a, a sort of broad sense of what your priors should be. If it were true that one of the main reasons why Americans revolted was to preserve slavery, what are the odds that in 2020 that would be an unknown point of view or we would be just discovering that now? I think very low, not zero, but very low. One way of thinking about this is it's been 40 years since Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, was a bestseller. And if for people unfamiliar with that book, it's it's become a cliche at this point because it's it's just a telling of, of U.S. history from the point of view of oppressed peoples. Well, he's usually lumped in with, with Chomsky a little bit in his... With yeah. Chomsky, right. But the, the reason I, I bring that up is because what, what are the odds that a book like that could have been popular in 1980, but no one discovered in the intervening years or popularized or ran a very long Atlantic article in the 90s about how actually the, the American Revolution was primarily fought to preserve slavery. It's very unlikely. It, it would be a very bizarre omission on the part of the past 50 years of pro progressive scholarship that this is just coming out now. And so it's far more likely that it is a an ideological attempt to rewrite the American story. I mean, they say that they are trying to rewrite the American story. That's not my putting it on to the 1619 Project. That is the explicit language they are using. You can tell the partisan biases of the 1619 Project by which institutions they go after as being part of, quote unquote, the legacy of slavery. So one thing the project says is that slavery has touched every institution in America. That brings up a question. Why are they only talking about certain institutions and not others? If, it, if indeed it has touched every part of America, why is it only that the legacy of slavery is our criminal justice system, a left-wing issue? The fact that we don't have universal health care, a left-wing issue, capitalism, etc. You can make the same exact arguments, but just flip the politics, right? You could say, for example, occupational licensing laws, for example, having to get government approval to become a taxi driver or a dentist or something like that. You could say that's rooted in slavery because in the 19th century, the South instituted those same kinds of laws in order to essentially re-enslave black people after the Civil War. That's a true historical fact, but you would never see an article in the 1619 Project linking that to labor regulation now because labor regulation happens to be popular on the left because it's a kind of market intervention. There are endless examples you could think of where you could find some analogy to slavery and white supremacy and undermine a current institution that happens to be on the right or the left or loved by the right or the left, but they only do it to undermine institutions that are liked by the right and, and hated by the left, which alone demonstrates the, the partisan bias of the project. We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. 
Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. I guess the light version of that argument, this argument that so many modern problems are, are rooted in slavery, the, the light version of that, and maybe the credible version of that, is the fact that America is a low-trust society. And people blame this lack of trust for the lack of a safety net. One source of American opposition to universal health care or even to Obamacare, which was not really universal care, was the idea that people who are white don't want to pay for health care for people who are black or Hispanic, whereas in a, in a more racially monolithic society like, say, Japan, it's less controversial because you're paying for health care for somebody who looks like you. It's not crazy to draw a line between slavery and the lack of trust between certain groups. I'm definitely open to the part of the reason we don't have the same openness to paying for our neighbors' you know, health is because we live in sort of a, a far more multi-ethnic, low-trust society. The counterfactual, though, where we didn't have slavery s still seems to involve a very multi-ethnic country. Before 1920, we had very high immigration and very high resistance to immigration including immigrants from Europe and Asia and the West Indies and whatnot. Then we closed the borders in 1920, opened them back up in 1965, and we've had resistance to our high rates of immigration ever since. Seems like even without slavery, we'd still have that high immigration relative to most nations. We'd still be a very multi-ethnic country. There are as many Hispanics as there are blacks in the country now, which would be true without slavery, presumably. So it seems we still might have those issues even without slavery. Wilfred Riley, in his article, he talks about how there's some people of color in immigrant communities who are really successful in the United States. Yes. And he indicates, I think, people of South Asian descent, I think their average income for first generation or second generation might be close to $100,000 per capita. Highest in the nation. Indian Americans are the highest earning ethnic group in the country. But he also talks about Nigerians. Apparently, Nigerians have a high earning rate. Yeah, Nigerians have a slightly higher household income than the average American. 
I believe. I don't think most people know that. That's actually very interesting. No, they don't. Part of the reason they don't, I think, is because these are facts that undermine the story that America is systemically racist. How could it be the case that a country defined by systemic racism is the number one destination for black and brown migrants around the world? The number one. Why is it that Indians and Nigerians and Ghanaians and Jamaicans are leaving everything behind to come here first, calling and emailing home to their sisters, brothers, and cousins, telling them to come here? If we are a systemically racist society against brown and black people. It doesn't pass the smell test. They're also objecting rightly to arbitrary immigration decisions that the Trump administration makes that often sends them back home. Yeah. One interesting point that that Riley made is that there's a particular fascination with American slavery, despite the fact that it's been practiced in many parts of the world uh, often, in some cases, unfortunately, more recently, and in some cases, much more recently than in the United States. Do you have a theory about why the American experience with slavery is the subject of such a special fixation? There are, there are a number of reasons. Wilfred is right, and it's something I often point out, that slavery has been practiced on every continent, every inhabited continent, for the past 10,000 years. And nowhere did you find a sustained movement to abolish the institution of slavery in all cases, until roughly the 17th century in the West. There was no sustained group of people writing to the effect that it was wrong in all cases to enslave another human being. That was a very novel idea, and it's difficult for modern people to get in the head of ancient people to, to understand how otherwise normal people could have accepted such an institution at face value. So, but to your question, why is it that we focus so much on American slavery? One reason might be that American slavery was hypocritical, whereas slavery everywhere else wasn't hypocritical because they did not even preach freedom to begin with. And there's something more annoying about the hypocrite than there is about the honest evil person. One of the tragic elements that Riley pointed to, I hadn't heard the term before, the Ferguson effect. Apart from the people who were affected by the specific violence in Ferguson, there was this lingering Ferguson effect. It's primarily hurt black people. Is this something that's part of your project? I read this in Riley's Quillette essay, but I didn't know if this emerged from his work with the 1776 project. So yeah, the, the idea of the Ferguson effect is because of Black Lives Matter protests, the national outrage at police misconduct, and the Justice Department investigations of different local police departments everywhere in the country, or specifically in places where the Justice, Justice Department has investigated, policemen are pulling back, not doing their jobs quite so aggressively or quite so proactively, and therefore the crime rate has gone up. That's, it's really an empirical question, whether that's actually happened. What I know is that there is research by some very respected criminologists that say it is happening. There are also papers on the other side by very respected criminologists. Overall, I think Thomas Apt, who's researcher at the Harvard Kennedy School says, it's not happening in the entire nation. There are a few cities in which it seems that it has happened. That's a problem but it can also be overstated.
Black Lives Matter had a surge in influence here in Toronto and then kind of died out. I'm not sure why, because some of the fundamental issues we have in Toronto, they're, they're similar, not as acute as in many American cities, but you do have a disproportionate number of black men who are incarcerated and interrogated by police and that sort of thing. But one thing that did happen in Toronto is it was led by campus activists who articulated an extremely intersectional view of black rights. They descended into some fairly arcane intersectional language. This is speculation on my part, but I, I didn't sound like language that would resonate with the sort of people who would be affected by daily interactions with police. What is your take on Black Lives Matter and the arc of Black Lives Matter in the United States? Because I don't know if Toronto is a, a particularly weird example, but I feel like I don't hear as much about Black Lives Matter as I used to. You're not wrong at all. I, I completely agree. I think it had a huge moment in 2014 and 2015. And ever since then, it's just slowly died out. There's a very interesting piece to be written about why that is. It didn't have that much of a concrete political project. All you really had to believe to be fully committed to the civil rights movement in, say, 1961, was that all black people should be allowed to vote. That is, it's such a simple message. It's a clear message. It's very easy to defend. It's not a small thing. What is the one policy-based equivalent that is attainable that Black Lives Matter could point to? This is the one thing, this is our political lodestar. We are marching on Washington to get this one thing. There really is no analogy. And I think you need something like that to sustain a movement or else you are mostly focused on symbolic victories. Black Lives Matter was first a symbolic movement, second a political project. There were some real things that Black Lives Matter achieved, but most people who would hashtag Black Lives Matter on Facebook probably couldn't tell you about them. They couldn't tell you about the changes in police union contracts that were progressive. They couldn't tell you about the fact that there is now a database in the Washington Post and the Guardian that keeps track of every American who was killed by the police. Those were achievements of Black Lives Matter, but they weren't central to the project. The project was really more about an inner psychological experience of centering your blackness as a political participant in the nation. That's why DeRay McKesson, the de facto leader of Black Lives Matter, which is a leaderless movement, he posts like clockwork every week or two on Twitter, quote, I love my blackness and yours. That is really more a prayer than it is a political project. He doesn't post, this is our one policy goal and our one demand. He posts, I love my blackness and yours, which is an identity, inner, spiritual mantra. Let me ask you a, maybe a more personal question. I've met you a few times. I know that you have a really wide range of interests. You're a high-level musician. You're close to graduating from Columbia, live in New York City with all that has to offer. Uh, is there part of you that, you know, you've, you've gotten drawn into some of these arguments about black identity and politics? Ten years from now, do you hope to be moving on to other subjects? There's a part of me that hopes it's not even ten years that I've moved on, uh, that it happens sooner than that. Yes, this is not the most interesting topic to devote one's life to. The irony is that because 
it sounds like you don't, on a daily basis, center blackness as part of your intellectual identity in the quasi-religious sense that, that some others do. But that fact means you get drawn into the debate, I guess in the same way that I sometimes, I get drawn into the debate about Judaism, even though I'm not a particularly observant Jew, I'll, I'll hear somebody say, uh, our Jewish social justice identity requires that, and then they'll just say like some appalling bullshit. <laughs> and and I'll be like, no, it doesn't. You know, yeah, Jews are allowed to take both sides of that issue or any issue. You know, just because we're Jewish doesn't mean we we have to have like a particular view on pronoun use or on income inequality or whatnot. Right. And then then I get invited on all these like shows <laughs> and I write columns for the Canadian Jewish News and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like a fraud yeah. because yeah. Like, I'm not that Jewish. Yeah. Do you ever feel that way? The irony is itself evidence of the problem that I am trying to speak publicly about. Race is a deeply uninteresting part of our identities, ultimately. That was what the civil rights movement stood for until about 1966, when the Black Power movement eclipsed it. And the Black Lives Matter movement is just the late stage of the Black Power movement. We've had this for a very long time. There's nothing new about it. And yeah, I I very much feel the irony of having to be the black person that argues against many of these ideas because we've so internalized it that you must your skin color must be a particular thing in order for your voice to have any impact whatsoever there is this weird thing that sometimes happens on social media where you'll have a black person arguing something and then a a white person will come in and say no no you're experiencing racism you just don't know it or something like that is i mean do you sometimes get these weird role reversals where you find yourself in the awkward position of maybe somebody who's white taking a position that's more closely associated with Black Lives Matter? Yeah, definitely at, at Columbia. That was where, was where it happens most, most often for me. More annoying than that, though, is to be told that you're an exception to the rule. If I tell someone, well, yeah, you know, I've had some experiences with racism here and there, but nothing so intense that it blocked my attempts at upward mobility, uh, blocked my attempts at applying for jobs or getting into the school of my dreams. And then to be told, well, that's good for you, but you're an exception to the rule. And so to at once demand that lived experience is the ultimate coin of the realm, but only when it's convenient. When someone's lived experience is the opposite of what my politics dictate, then I write them off as an exception and in the next breath demand that they recognize my lived experience as the ultimate trump card. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with the 1776 project. You too. Bye. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.